let's go again. Yeah, sorry. So the farming. Yeah, I mean, at Louise's. you know, Louise was a graphic designer. I mean, in Joburg and, and her dad got sick and she, she came down to help her mom and take over. The, she, she wasn't wanting to, to, to take over a farm, but, uh, but she did. And, and she did the best she could. And, and she made, I think, great wine. She had a great palate, huge breadth of, of wine education and as a drinker, which is, I still so think. What was she drinking at that point? What kind of? Hell of a lot of classical Bordeaux. Her mum's birth year, Ursula, who was cooking a lot during vintage, was 28. And so we were often clapping 28. Okay. Uh, a lot of, tried quite a few 61s with her and then a lot of lesser vintages. Uh, but but um, I think the first bottle we drank together on my first day of work was 85 Croix de Parentou from Henri Jaya, which I think since then has become one of the most expensive wines in the world, which again, I didn't know at the time. Well, mm. and it wasn't at the time, but, mm. but it certainly has become. Um, and I remember her saying the only, and um, you know, I think we were cooking a, a piece of vorse and, and she was like, well, the only thing we can drink after Henri Jaya is another Henri Jaya. So we had a, an 86. Um, there's nowhere to go after that. Like it's just, yeah, you just I mean, have to stay there. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was driving back to Cape Town where I was living, so. Yeah. Um, but we clapped two bottles of Henri Jaya, and mm. that was a good first day's work. That's not a bad afternoon. That yeah. was my first day actively in the wine industry, beyond picking grapes or, or cleaning cleaning wine, cleaning cellars. Yeah. But um, so it was a good first day, and um, you know, and as a parenthesis to to that. You know, I drank a, a 2000 Croix de Parentou from, which is obviously made by the nephew of, I mean, they, I think 2000, whatever they bill as his last vintage, but I mean, mm. he, he was no longer at all active and it had been five or six years since he'd had a hand and, and the wine was a boring piece of crap. So, you know, people count as well. Yes. Um, and this is certainly something, um, yeah, I know we drank some wines from La Lubis Loire, who, who I ended up meeting that year in 1999 mm -hmm. in, in France. No, 2000, I met her. When I was working for Domaine Gobi at one of the first Renaissance tastings, and you know, I spent a long time chatting with her, which was bizarre. Uh, but mm. she was extremely friendly, and uh, which she's famous for not being, but um, in France. Mm. I mean, she's about... I think she's still alive. She's about 90, I think. But anyway, so she took me through the entire range of wines and they were magical. And she gave me the advice in the climates where I was working, being South Africa. She said, just don't extract anything. And she said, yeah, we do a little bit, but at the end and, and so on. But she said, in your climate, don't touch. And so, you know, that, that random moment, uh, again, touched me very. A lot of my winemaking today is is based around very simple things that I picked up or, 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 or got thrown at me um, yeah. by people like that. Yeah, right. And you know, whether it was Louise to, uh, with her, she'd treat New Oak like a fucking vampire or something. Yeah, right. Um, or or Lalubis Loire telling me don't fucking extract and. You know, the, the, the powerful lesson of, I, I just drunk 20 wines from her. Yes. And the, the, the quality of the tannin compared to anything else coming out of Burgundy at that time. And I, I hate most Burgundy. I fucking detest it. Mm. Um, Why is that? Because it's boring. Okay. And, you know, I think it's such a great 
terroir and, and, and terroirs, uh, uh, plural, but um, and and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, are great grapes, but but most people make shit wine from them, and you know it it it. I'd rather drink a little wine from from Jura or a little wine from the Savoie or or a great wine, preferably from mm. those areas, but. But I don't want to be to 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 drink a Burgundy f to say I drank a Burgundy. Mm. And, the, and the little there seems quite important. Yeah, I mean, I for you, I mean, I, you in know, terms I, of the I, I I don't drink a lot, but I drink regularly, and um, you know, I, I like a bottle or so a day, yeah. and um, you know, I don't want co other people's complications in my glass. Uh, so you're, you're more, I mean. I'm going to paraphrase here, but are you more talking about sort of more honest wine? Is that is that how would you? Yeah, honest, it, honest. Would you phrase it that way or not? Giving or? it a loaded. Yeah. You know, I'm not accusing people of being dishonest. Dishonest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's the whole I, natural. You know, that's the that's the nomenclature of natural. That's, that sort of sets people on edge. That that anything else must be unnatural. unnatural. Yeah. Which I'm less. You know, yeah. I, I'm. You know, for me, it's not a. That's not then a moral mm. issue, and um, you know, I, I'm probably a bit more more sketchy on that front. But uh, no, I've got no problem saying natural wine, and mm. yes, I, I think that that wine that's made with chemicals and and additions is unnatural. So there's no. It's, it's basic logic. Yeah. Whereas you know, saying someone's dishonest. You know, if they believe what they're doing is right, then mm. then and more power to them. Okay. You know, I'm not yeah. going to take that away from them, yeah, yeah. and I don't have that right. But yeah, the simplicity and the kind of simplicity. I mean, I, you know, I can find it. I could find it in in Henri Jaya's 85 Cru de Parentou, and I can find it in a the Brouillet from Georges Decom, simple, straight drinking Beaujolais, but with great depth. Yes. I mean. And despite the fact that he wears plastic tracksuits and gold chains around his neck um, and looks like a thug, um, the, the guy's a great, one of my favorite winemakers in France, uh, Georges, uh, Henri's dead, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, um, and yet the two wines, they're geographically very close, mm -hmm. but they've got nothing to do with each other mm -hmm. except uh, that they go straight down. And, you know, when Henri Jaya talked about making wine, I think he bullshitted a lot. And he had a, a funny sense of humor, but but he was always talking about he distemmed everything and used new oak and yada yada and and people went crazy trying to reproduce. No one ever made wine like Henri Jaya following those recipes. Mm. Um, there's a guy called Denny Morte who, who actually killed himself. Um, he was obsessed with Henri Jaya. I had lunch with him twice at my brother-in-law's place around that time, around 2000. And all he did was talk about Henri Jaya, and, and his wines were horrible. And they were quite famous, and Parker loved them, and uh, very expensive. And but he didn't like them, his own wine, because he was following what I think was a fictional recipe uh, that yeah, Henri Jaya put out just to take the piss. The, the gingerbread um, path that didn't, yeah. yeah, led. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and shame the poor guy. I mean, I mean, I, I think the son is pulled the thing around and making straighter stuff. But, but you know, essentially, a lot of Burgundy, modern Burgundy, I've done make me sick. I mean, it, it give me a headache, a migraine, um, uh, in the same way a lot of... Um, and I understand the thing about people with a lot of expensive real estate and, and, you know, you maybe you've inherited it, but still you've got to pay the fucking death taxes. 
and you know this idea of surety and this crazy history of of Primox and Burgundy, which was hilarious. I mean, you know, there was a very popular excuse for Primox, which was it was Robert Parker's fault because he didn't like high sulfur, and so all the winemakers stopped using so much sulfur, <laughs> so the wines oxidized. You know, the most backward Kafkaesque kind of reasoning, uh, as if first and foremost, that Robert Parker had any inclination towards natural wine, which he doesn't. Um, and simply the fact that they weren't taking responsibility for their farming. And the reason that is far more approached by, by someone like um, Claude and Lydia Bourguignon, who, 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 who set up the warning in the 80s that, that Burgundy had less soil life than the Sahara Desert. And no, fuck that. We're not going to listen to that. Um, you know, yeah. you, you look... That's hard to listen to. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that doesn't make sense because mm. we're the most expensive wine region in the world. Um, you know, anything coming out of here must be precious. But yes, it is if you farm properly. And, you know, people like Henri Jaux, I, mean, I, think, I think famously Crudeparin too was a fucking cabbage patch or something mm. until he reclaimed it and turned it into a vineyard. <coughs> but clearly the guy knew how to farm. And I sh I'm assuming there was a, a lot of compost and, and energy. And if it was an old v vegetable garden or bit of forest and so on, you know, that, that, that soil would have had a lot of energy, uh, a lot of organic matter. And, um, that was an asset at that point, not a, um, not a detraction. Not a, not yeah. a detraction, of, yeah. despite the fate of that poor chap with Le, at Le Bonheur. And so, yeah, I mean... I, so you're, you're, you're making wine or... Assisting making wine in Pal in '99, then you go to Gobi in later that year. Yeah. And obviously for the Northern Hemisphere harvest. How did you end up there? Uh, through Louise, actually. Okay. And you know, I'd I'd read about the Gobi wines. He was starting to become well known around '93, '94. People were noticing him. I think, yeah, he's a, he was he, he's a very powerful character, mm. a, a bit of a showman, but a very good farmer. And, you know, I was very open with Louise. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not, we have to go a lot further in the farming. And, and she, she agreed that, that organics had to be the future of farming. She, she wasn't farming organically, but would have liked to. But, but there was a lack of knowledge in South Africa at the time about how to make that happen. And I certainly didn't know of anyone who could give me that information here. Yeah. As it turned out, I mean, Gobi hadn't been organic that long, but... Mm. Um, but he'd made a very strong decision and, you know, he'd had the example of his own grandfather who was farming grapes until the late 80s. A chap who'd never had a, a driver's license, who still went off to the vineyards in a horse and cart every morning and never used a chemical in his life. And so for them, it was, you know, barely a 10-year period where their vineyards were run chemically. Yes. And, you know, there's... The generation of, of Gobi's father, who, who uh, I guess we call them baby boomers, or you know, who, who love chemicals, yeah, and just thought they were the future, and this is the way it has to go. Unfortunately, uh, Girard came in very young and um, was able to push that out quite quickly. So it was a, it was a more of a blip, you know. Yeah. Well, a ten year, you can do a lot of damage, but. Um, 
So after harvest at Gobi in 99, you returned back to South Africa at that point? Or yeah. Because yeah? you you're still based here. You're still yeah, based yeah, in still Cape based. Town. Definitely. Yeah. No, no, Jesus, I didn't have a European passport. So. Yeah, right. And, uh, and was traveling into Europe as difficult with a with a green mumba as it is now? In terms well, of I, visa I, I, and things, I had or? a New Zealand passport. Of course you did. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. no, it was a lot easier. And... Um, and a bunch of people have been telling me about Ibn Saadi and you know he was that he was about 24 I think or 23 and mm -hmm. he was and you were how old at this point sort of late 20s yeah or, yeah and uh, so a couple of years older than Ibn and so who was talking about Ibn at that point who, who were you talking to that that English wine buyers okay. guys I'd met around the circuit and yep. old friends from New Zealand who who one was working for an English supermarket and. And then, but if uh, you know, it must have been three or four people. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think who. Uh, and did you know Irvin or uh, uh, from South Africa at all, or were you only here? At, at that stage, not at all. Okay. I mean, so I called him up and said, "Hey, my name's Tom, and uh, yeah." And uh, he said, "Yeah, come out for a tasting." And um, we we chatted for about four hours, and mm -hmm. and he said, "Come and do vintage here if you can." And and that was it. I mean, mm. Charles was Charles Back, who was the, not yet the sole partner of. of the, in that stage, there was still, I think, John Platter and Jabulani and a few other folk involved. Uh, Charles Webb, I think. But Charles was in the process of buying them out. So, and he 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 was like, yeah. So, I think it, I'm not sure if I was even paid that first year, but certainly the second year, I came on. Charles was wanting to set up a smaller project where we focused on. Old, uh, patches of old vines around the place, mm -hmm. um, and some young. It was a, it was a, but the idea was to make a blend of, of a whole bunch of different things in a mm -hmm. sort of Chateauneuf style. Yeah. So what, what was your role there? What was your what were you what was your daily tasks? What were you doing there? Were you sort of sourcing vineyards or what were you? A bit of everything, yeah. yeah. And then r running this this little cellar and and doing basic winemaking. I mean, okay. So. And you know, I was very well paid, and, and it was a uh, my first uh, proper job in in. And I mean, it it even I. I mean, by that stage, Spice Street was quite a big seller, mm -hmm. and you know, I was helping out there as well. And um, and the wines you were making, what 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 did they end up in bottle? What were they? Did they end up in a bottle or what? They, they? unfortunately, well, unfortunately, they belonged to Charles. He blended yeah. them into the what was called. Goat roti, okay, and uh, yeah. which was a, a little leap from something that was meant to resemble Chateauneuf de Pub, but yeah. you know, I mean, that, that there was a very strong marketing impulse in in the yeah. Fairview Group, and uh, that was the became the year that I think Charles first put his own name on everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he was creating his brand in essence. Okay, so this is you know, this is vintage two thousand. Uh, 2001. 2001, okay. Yeah, that, that wine was made. Yeah. And, um... And you stayed, what, one, just one year there, or did you... Yeah, oh, I worked the 2000 vintage helping Irvin at Spice Root, where yeah. I, I made the first few barrels of Observatory, and Irvin okay. made his first barrels of Kudumela. Okay. Saudi family wines. So talk to uh, me about Observatory, how that came about. Well, there. I mean, we were, we, it was actually quite funny. I mean, we were, and, you know, by that stage, Irvin was already kind of 
passionate about the Swatland and, and trying to get people interested in doing uh, better wine. And he had already touched uh, people like Paul and Anna Kretzel, uh, mm -hmm. who, who made uh, were farming Lamasuk in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd already s renovated a small small winery, uh, the original winery on the on the farm and uh, we, were, we were driving all over the Swatland and by that stage I was also looking up at Bikineers Kloof and places like that at the Grenache but um, we uh, and there's a farm next to where Adi is now mm -hmm. called Jakos Fontaine, yes. uh, Corbus Smith and Irvin had already earmarked an old vine, one of the oldest Syrahs in South Africa I think um, which was kind of down in a very sandy spot and I didn't like and rate um, but there was a young three-year-old Syrah vineyard up next to the schoolhouse okay. and there was seemed to be a lot more clay in that soil and I, and I said I, I want to make and we ended up sharing that vineyard Ivan and I and that was my first picking and you know I, I don't and still don't I mean, I love working with old vines, and some, a lot of my vines are 90 to 120 years old in, in mm. France. But I still believe very strongly that the right vine in the right place, properly farmed, you know, you can make better wine with a five-year-old vineyard than a hundred-year-old vineyard if the conditions are better. It's not the fact that a wine is older. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, it, just just to digress slightly onto that, um, if that young vineyard becomes old, does it become better? If okay. it's in the right spot, I mean, does that is that is that also true or not? I mean, I th it becomes different, but uh, I mean, obviously, it changes with it, with age. Does it does it improve? You think, or is it just become different? Does it become? Yeah, it, it's in your view. I mean, it's not. It's, I mean, it's, it's a total as, you know, subjective thing. It's it's very it, hard to be objective about it. And especially when you're talking about what might be a hundred-year period. Mm. Um, and again, you know, fall back on so much depends on the person who's farming. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no way of making any kind of accurate comparative statement. Mm. What I notice certainly when I take over old vineyards and I've and I've been involved in. Uh, conversions of maybe 70, 80 hectares and, and my other project in France is called Domaine de Majas, which, which I'm not an owner but, but I've been doing for 12 years and you know, we've converted 30 odd hectares. You know, the, the, certainly I can say that vineyards get a lot better uh, as soil becomes more lively. Yeah. Your pH is uh, when you, after the third, fourth, fifth year where you've eliminated Roundup um, and other systemics, your, 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 and certainly chemical fertilizers as well, which, which burn enormous amounts of, of single cell activity. They burn virtually all, hence Steiner's uh, problems. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see an improvement there. Uh, as to whether, I mean, I, th I think uh, over vigor is a problem in a lot of young vineyards, but, you know, frequently you're talking about chemical fertilizers, irrigation, mm. uh, which is an eco-crime. Uh, uh, shitty viticulture makes for bad young vines. Mm. So, you know, I've had a lot of brilliant wine from two-year-old vines. Uh, you think of 61s, mm. you know, how much young vineyard was in those wines. Mm. And 
you know, I, I had an amazing tasting in the late 90s at, uh, fuck, uh, Chateau Palmer, <laughs> who, make a, who made a legendary 61 mm. from very young vines because of the frosts of 58. Mm or 57 or 59, whatever yeah. the fuck the frosts were, but they were around <laughs> the that late time. 50s, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we had the 61, we jumped all the way up to 82, uh, which is, everything tastes like fucking Rioja, the vintage that made Robert Parker's name. Mm -hmm. And then 85, 86, 89, 90, 95, 96. The only wine that had any fruit was 61. Everything else was shit. You know, if I was... And I've, you know, in those days, I, I'd read Broadbent, I'd read Jansis, I'd read mm. uh, Parker himself on, on Bordeaux. And, mm. and how the fuck do you explain not having a great vintage from 61 to 82? Mm. Oh, the weather wasn't good. I mean, fuck that. Mm. Um, and then the 61, which was just like so many 61s I've tried, but uh, including Hermitage or... Whatever it was, mm. a fucking beautiful, amazing, uh, vibrant, young wine, and the eighty twos were already cooked. In, in this was around ninety eight, I guess, mm. um, and tasted horrible, raisiny, tastes like shitty old port. And I think at that stage it was the most expensive vintage going it was eighty two. Uh, but uh, sorry, I digressed there a bit. Sorry. Yeah, so. no, but I, young vines, they, mm. you know, it's irrelevant, mm. fucking irrelevant. And, mm. um, you know, I, I <laughs> my most, the Madison Rouge, which actually the same price as Madison Blanc or Romney Cassat, but that's a hundred and planted in 1900, uh, well, it's marked in 1900, so it could have been planted a little bit before because my wife's grandmother said she remembered it as an, as an old vineyard. Uh, in around 1918, so okay. uh, when she was a little girl. So, uh, okay. but anyway, it's marked as being planted in 1900. Th mm. There was basically th two big years of, um, of of census for mm. vineyards in our area, and that was 1900, 1903. So a lot of vineyards are marked as being planted in those years, but okay. they were actually planted already. Mm. Anyway, so uh, and I, I enjoy working with that. It's a, been a huge amount of work. It's fucking inconvenient to work with because it's planted 150 by 150 which is not i think a, a sensible planting in our area mm. though they, i mean they would have done that because it's it's terraces and okay. uh, there's a it's a type of chalk that holds a lot of water um oh, right. can hold a lot of water mm -hmm. so the, you know there was a certain logic but it's it's in a hot climate dense planting is bullshit so yeah i it's it's you know, f f right now, I mean, uh, 20 years later, I mean, I, I believe more than ever that the, that the farming is that, you know, whether you're using small oak or whether you're using amphora or whether you're using concrete or stainless steel, which I don't use ever, but, uh, uh, and I use a lot of different stuff to age, and I, and I hate the way a lot of journalists get obsessed about Know, what you're aging your wine in, or you know, yeah, but, I, think, I think that's I think that's a symptom rather than the yeah, but it's, it's, it's an annoying <laughs> fucking uh, uh, but, it's, sex, but, it's sexier than talking about you know spending yeah, um, you know 200 days a year in, in the vineyard sort of thing, you know, and, like, yeah, you know, something so simple and so basic, like you know, 
counting your organic matter levels or, or mm. being aware of them and observing. I mean, you can do it after a time visually. You don't need to, to, to do analyses. And I mean, a, a, a very powerful moment for me was visiting Patrick Mayer in Alsace, Domain Julian Mayer, and looking at his Munchberg crew, uh, the, the Riesling vineyard, and next door there's a chemical guy, so it's on granite. Mm -hmm. The chemical guy, the soil looks like beach sand. Mm -hmm. Above Patrick, you know, magnificent exposition is the Ostertag Munchberg, uh, which is biodynamically farmed. Um, which is one of those joke terms I love, um, uh, and you know, very well done. You know, very, but as was the chemical guy. But but, Ostertag Vineyard looks like people want to imagine an organic vineyard, but ploughed clean and and beautifully ploughed. I mean, the the Alsace guys can plough like haute couture. I mean, it's it's uh, not a. Uh, twig out of place and um, it was winter it was January so it was fucking cold obviously no leaves left anywhere but mm. but you can see the shoot which is very good because it's good to be able to see the health and quality of the shoots and um, uh, they've clearly been as well you know a lot of growth on the Ostertag vineyard and you know they were probably plowing to get that kind of effect you you're probably plowing five six times a year and Patrick has been working under cover crop for, for about 10 years by that stage. And, you know, the Ostertag soil was pale brown. We couldn't see Patrick's soil initially, but, you know, I was digging into each one. I mm. mean, I couldn't even get the fork into the chemical thing. Mm. Even though it looked like powdery sand on top, it was compact and hard and everything mm. you'd expect. Mm. And Ostertag, I got the fork in and it was nice. It was obviously, but it's been, it's been stirred up so much that 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 and i'm not saying i don't know how the fuck he works today so mm. um i'm not pissing on ostertag because mm. uh, he's clearly working bloody hard mm. um but i couldn't find a single earthworm which is normal in in january in ostertag's soil mm. um you know you'd have to go deep down and i wasn't going to get involved in excavation at mm. that point <laughs> uh already a bit chancy but uh in patrick's soil it opened up like a, a piece of chocolate cake mm. and looked like chocolate cake. Mm. It was black. Moist and... And mm. moist and there was worms fully active about five centimeters under the surface. And the surface, the, the air temperature was zero degrees. But technically, from what, if you read most books, this is now impossible. And, you know, I, I visited a chap called Didier Barral, uh, Domaine Leon Barral, both domains actually named for the father, even though it's, it's and in uh, Didier's case, he's actually working with his brother, which very few people realize, a guy called Jean-Luc, who's the mechanic of the, the operation. And uh, the same thing, I mean, I was there in mid-July, 38 degrees, and earthworms fully active. Mm. You know, in, in the average plowed, uh, biodynamic, uh, um, spray my 500 because I'm an optimist uh, vineyard, um, you know, you've, you've, you've got earthworm activity in spring and autumn, you know, hence the importance of timing your, your 500s with that activity. But, mm -hmm. but you know, and that, that was a very, and cover cropping was something that I'd 
tried already on on a on a small level, and I, I just I lacked the technical uh, expertise to really put it in place and work with it in the beginning. And you know, it's a lot of organization, and it continues to be our our biggest challenge ten years on yeah. from my beginning that kind of work. Mm. But it's it's also had the most profound effect in the way I my wines look today. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, we probably dropped. We're picking around the same time. I mean, I, I have a reputation for picking very, very early, um, which I was doing at the observatory as well, which did upset a lot of people at the time. So, what, when were you picking observatory? What, what sort of time of you? Well, I mean, I was picking in January, like so. Yeah. And that was obscene at that point. Yeah, people were like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. I mean, it was. And you know, certainly on the, my first ventures, I struggled to get them in when I wanted them in. You know, I was tasting the grapes; they taste great, but sometimes people were refusing to pick the grapes, the mm. farmers, okay. um, which, which pushed me to 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 buy the farm with my my family that we did. And mm. when, when did the part of it? When did you buy that farm? Oh three. Oh three. And, okay. You know, it was, it was so you'd, you'd made you'd made grapes. I uh, made wine from there. You'd use grapes there. You know, two thousand, two thousand and one, in two thousand and two. No, 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 no. I, I wish we had, but okay. uh, no, no. Just oh. from from three on. Oh, okay, just from three on. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because in you know my grapes and I was still using contacts I'd made through the time I worked with Irvin and Charles and um, still using the Jakobsfontein fruit and uh, mm -hmm. and one or two others. Okay. But definitely, I, I for me the Paderberg was the was the, was the spot? Yeah. Um, why is that? Why? Why do you think that? Why, at that point, why did you think that the Paderberg was the was the center of your? I universe? mean, I was I was fermenting an awful lot of uh, different stuff uh, from around the Swatland generally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, including some stuff from Baal, including uh, also. I mean, I thought the Grenache from Picanius Cliff was fantastic. If I, you know, if I was to combine. For, for me, the practicality of being near Cape Town mm -hmm. and uh, and what for me was the most shining wines of of, of the, I mean the Paderberg had so much going for it. There was an energy in the wine, that the freshness and a, I, I I like acidity in wine. Yeah, and I could more easily you know doing kind so of so the the detention was in yeah. The wine I mean yeah. one of the things I did on that that project with where we were selecting these parcels on interesting soils or older vines um uh, you know uh, was pushing the farmers to do a lot more shoot thinning okay. and uh, leaf plucking mm -hmm. and getting sunlight on the the grapes straight after fruit set okay or or during flowering or, or which is a bit more tricky because you don't want people whacking the um, the bunches, but so working that way, uh, limiting malic acid. Jesus, that's going to be a problem. Can we just jump inside quickly? Yeah. So, and again, I'm not entirely sure why, but I was I was focused on getting malic acid down. Okay. And uh, I, I don't like lactic characters in wine. Okay. And uh, certainly that's. Part again of, of the wines I make at Mata, so we, we virtually have no malic acid anymore. Mm. Yeah, right. Uh, which which is a bonus. And that's um, primarily primarily due to farming. 
Yeah, it's hundred percent due to farming. Yeah, because if you take the same terroir and, and grape varieties at the cooperative, they, they they have a lot more vegetal growth and uh, uh, a lot more malic acid. They'll mm. have you know standard readings one point five to two, and uh, so a lot of lactic acid uh, from mallow and and very unstable pHs. Okay. So stabilizing, lowering pH through farming and, and, and stabilizing it um, was certainly, to my thinking, and, and still, I mean, I don't tend to look at it very much these days, but a way of eliminating sulfur from winemaking. Yeah. Lowering sulfur and then eliminating. So it's Yeah, re reduce the need for sulfur in yeah. terms of the need to use it. Yeah. You know, and I, I tend to, to emphasize that, you know, as m much as I did some hopeful experiments in my in my youth and and these days if I take on a, a vineyard I'll still use a little bit of sulfur while the vineyards finding its feet mm. unless it's a small piece that I'm fermenting with with healthy okay. fruit and you know there's a lot of other factors as well such as you know things like um, disease I mean oidium powdery mildew which mm. I think is, is is one of the big problems in in a lot of natural wine um, you know, the, your same chap who doesn't maybe wash a barrel so cleanly is probably not getting his vineyards that healthy either. Mm. And yeah, it's one of those. Um, you know, in chemical winemaking, you 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 don't tend to notice oidium uh, because of sulfur. Um, in natural winemaking, you do. Yeah, it's exposed. Yeah. And things like mouse become quite fixed, and uh, whereas it should just be a small temporary passage. After bottling, it becomes a, a consistent, can become a long-lived problem. And shitty farming is, is um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I've heard the occasional reference to powdery here, and, and I'm sure it, it can be a problem. Mm -hmm. But in in our area, it can be a huge problem, okay. and particularly on things like uh, Carignan, which is very sensitive, or mm -hmm. Muscat Pitigrain, mm -hmm. or Syrah. Um, mm -hmm. And I've certainly seen grapes being turned into wine that that shouldn't be. Yeah, right. And you know, if you take those bunches and you 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 don't bring sulfur into the equation, the wine is going to be uh, fairly unpleasant. Mm. Um, maybe not, but but there's a good chance. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, running your 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 vineyard program in such a way that that okay, your first sulfur treatments get done uh, very early and uh, you take a lot of pressure, disease pressure off the later season and, and mm. unfortunately there's this weird um, uh, thing where people say well I only treat when I need to but that's a crock of shit because you need to treat in the beginning and then you take off the pressure at the end mm. but if you allow it to develop which it's going to yeah. you, so you think prevention is better than cure yeah yeah and you're using maybe one tenth of the amount of sulfur, mm -hmm. and you, you, your your growth is much healthier through mm -hmm. the season. Mm -hmm. And this is is a a basic. I mean, uh, the, the guy I'm buying this property off in 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 France, he's destroyed 14 hectares of vineyard through that year after year of of, of powdery mildew and. Mm -hmm. uh, um, shitty grapes and so he has to buy the grapes from somewhere else but he's still saying after 10-12 years of farming that you should only treat um, 
when you need to. After it's, yeah. And it's when you need to treat it by visually seeing powdery mildew, it's too late. I mm. mean, you, you, unless you're going to use potassium permanganate or something illegal, it, it's, mm. uh, you can't get rid of mildew, um, mm. uh, powdery. Powdery, yeah. Um, so, sorry, um, Observatory 2003, you bought property. So is this, is this Bosch Haasfontein, is that? Yeah, Bosch Haasfontein, yeah. Okay. And uh, what, what attracted you to that? If a, it was for sale. Yeah, I think that was the, the most attractive. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there's the altitude of the, the top sites, you know, a lot of texture and, and the, the, um, a bit more rock, a bit more, you know, I, yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, the, the, I mean, there was an, a few interesting varieties as well. And mm -hmm. So what was, on the, what was on the farm? What was planted there? Well, there was obviously I needed Syrah to to keep going with what I was doing, and mm -hmm. um, um, and there was Muscat, uh, Hanaput, and obviously a lot of Chenin Blanc, and mm -hmm. you know, I at that point started making white wine in mm -hmm. in South Africa, mm -hmm. which I hadn't done before okay. um, for myself, mm -hmm. um, and uh, well, and uh, a few interesting things. Mm. I mean. Yeah, and definitely, I mean, you sort of, it's facing out to sea, there's a certain uh, amazing amount of day-night difference. Mm -hmm. uh, again, this sort of thing I don't tend to look at too much these days, um, but, but there was a kind of reassurance in that for me at the time. And what were you, what were you hoping to achieve there when you brought, or were you not thinking in those sort of terms? Well, no, definitely. I mean, I was hoping to grow grapes I could use, which... which uh, conform more to my own belief of, of how farming should be done. I mean, at that time, I mean, I, we started having children in France and, you know, I was trying to farm through through the, my mom and sister and, you know, it, it was, it was uh, you know, I can't claim to have farmed uh, Boschhausfontein. You know, I was spending maybe a bit more than a month per year there. So, okay. uh, a month and a half. So, you know, I... I certainly did what we could and, and you know it's a bit like you know someone you you hear people who, who make a wine uh, and call themselves a winemaker you know if you make one vintage you, you're not a winemaker I mean mm. you you except in the most simple sense of the term mm. um, this is where the French term vigneron is, is very useful. Uh, that was going to exactly be what I was going to say yeah. without, without wanting to sound like a cunt, but mm. it's a great term because it employs your entire life. And you don't say like Gerard Depardieu did on his passport because he bought a chateau that he was a vigneron. And people like him and he's loved character, but at the same time, people are like, what the fuck? You're not a vigneron. You're an actor, but you know, I mean, let it pass because he's Gerard Depardieu and, and mm. so on. But but well, it's the same if in 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 sort of my circles. If you pour a if you pour a bottle of wine, suddenly you're, you're a sommelier. A sommelier. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> sommelier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. It's it's it 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 has to be part of a of a long process, and I mean, it it's it's learning and absorbing and thinking and you know, making one vintage is is not a winemaker. You know, growing one season of grapes does not make you a farmer. It's it's uh, it's a through the years, uh, mm. and it's you know I still spend a huge amount of energy and effort uh, 
working out how to get better grapes and how to get my soil healthier and and um you know i spend a lot of time chatting i've got two people working for me in the vineyards one of whom is three days a week a very sharp young guy um who helps me occasionally in the cellar as well and then a, a full-time vineyard guy who's just started about a year ago mm -hmm. and you know i need to spend a lot of time explaining to them what we're doing okay you know the the because they, they don't come from a no 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 yeah. no and uh <laughs> the um they both worked for a very big uh, company near us that 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 that, that, that is not at all organic mm. quite quite the opposite there mm. pretty fucking hostile actually mm. but you know both of them are now working their own vineyards organically mm -hmm. and uh putting down cover crop and um the one in quite a serious way the other guy's only got half a hectare or something mm. he just does it because he's always had a bit of vineyard you know, mm. like a lot of people in our area mm -hmm. so you know no they're both convinced by the and they're happy and not working with chemicals and they mm -hmm. you know i try and bring in a context as well where you know during harvest I, at lunchtime i cook for everyone and and i think people are very sensitive to everyone eats and you know when you you're cooking organic veggies and good food and and i use a, a very good flour and you know i buy for them as well the mm. flour now the, because not because i tell them they have to use it but mm. because they taste it yeah they, they prefer it yeah. and now they say you know i've got a mate who grows old grains up in the mountains and he mills it every week and delivers it for seven euros for a five kilo bag and you make bread or pizza or crepe or, or muffins or whatever the fuck you make. Yeah. Um, and it's a whole other world. And the, the, it's like if you get good butter. It's the same thing. Of course. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. Which we don't in our area, yeah. but, but we, we can get it from the north. But, mm. but we certainly get great olive oil. But, um, and so, yeah, they, and they've, they see the, 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 the fact that, that a lot of classical growers in our area will look at our vineyards and say I'm a dirty lazy foreigner because there's all this fucking grass and flowers and mm. uh, bees and all this well, useless partly because it's obviously true and uh... yeah no well, I mean, <laughs> on, a, on a personal level they, they, they're fucking spot on but but you know when they they see all this these the, the insects and the the flowers and 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 they get very upset some mm. of them and so you know I, i've certainly had a lot of old schoolers telling me uh, a little bit like here at the time, but mm. that, that I would be bankrupt in, in a couple of years. And mm. that if I thought I was going to make a living doing this and feed my family, that I was uh, crazy, pissing in the wind, mm. um, pissing into the wind. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think the, the hectareage of the cooperative has been reduced by about 70% in that time. Uh, so, and I'm not so, claiming any great victory or, or taking any great pleasure from that. In fact, we recently found that my wife's part of the local cooperative, that the, um, they're going to shut down. And, you know, I think when I first started in that area, there was 68 cooperative in, in the Pyrenees Oriental. And today there's uh, seven, I think, still mm -hmm. going. And that's probably going to be reduced to four or five in the next two years. So... You know, on the one, it's technically very difficult in a dry climate to farm successfully. 
Because, I mean, what is fucking important? Mm. Um, you know, we're in a situation, and, and I can speak for South Africa or, 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 or France or, or Australia, and the, the global average is like 1% organic matter in agricultural soil today. A, a very healthy soil will have 5%. And, um, you know, that sounds so simple. And, it, and you read any important commentator on agriculture from the last 100 years, uh, whether it's Steiner or, or Sir Albert Howard or Fukuoka, or, you know, the nut of what each of them saying is that organic matter is what counts. Mm. And yet, this seems to be the most difficult thing for any farmer anywhere to put into practice. And people will do anything to avoid dealing with this question. And do you have a hypothesis on why that is? Because it's fucking a lot of work. Mm. It's expensive and it's work. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge amount. And, and whether you're using machinery or, or, or people to, to dig, or, um, it, it's, it's, it's tons and hundreds of tons and thousands of tons that need to be mm. moved or grown in place. And, and you, you can't just rely on a sprinkle of compost per year. And you, you have to aggressively shift the, the mm. you know, if, if you think you're going to mix up a, a little pack of Preparation 500 and, and, you know, dance around the vineyard and spray that and suddenly you've mm. got a, a, a living soil, yeah. you, 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 you should really do something else. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think the term aggressively shift is, is probably a very well put. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, you know, you can say this is a war. I mean, this mm. is... This is something that, that if you're passive, it's not going to work. Mm. Entropy will, will yeah. take effect, yeah. Yeah, entropy is, mm. is, is certainly one of the strongest impulsions when you, when you think of, of a modern agricultural soil where you, your energy is just dissipating. Through, mm. You know, rain becomes almost an enemy because the soils don't hold together. Mm. And, you know, there should be a celebration Mm. And people, you know, I remember seeing 10 rain, years ago... Rain brings disease and... Disease mm. and erosion. Mm. And, you know, it was a, it's a huge, still a huge problem in our area, you know, of flooding. Because mm. the soil can't accept the water. It certainly can't hold it. Yeah. I mean, and that, that, that equation of, of the 1% holding 10 kilos of water per square meter and 5% you're holding around 70 mm. kilos. You know, Seven hundred thousand liters of water in a, in a hectare of soil uh, is 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 kind of useful, mm. and most importantly, it's water that's that that can be used by the plant. But accessible, yeah. Yeah, that's not it's, just going to burn off, or, off or, yeah. or, or or evaporate straight mm. straight out. It's an urgent thing, um, but you need to have the structure to be able to really action it. And, I mean, we, we grow... It, it, it seems like you have to live it as well. It's not something, as you say, you can do over the phone or via email or it's... No, yeah. <laughs> no you, yeah. and you, you have to be there and you have to see what happens when it rains on a piece of your ground. Mm. Uh, is it the right thing? Uh, and, you know, when you first buy a piece of land, probably not. Uh, people don't sell good land. You know, they sell <laughs> that's shit that's land. A, <laughs> that's very... Um, uh, uh, it's it's yeah. an unfortunate fact. Very good little maxim. <laughs> but if it's for sale, it's not good. Yeah, something. Yeah, it's for, it's, just, it's being sold for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they can say we're retiring or, or we've had enough or. or but the, the the reality of the fact is they've fucked it. 
and you know no one is inheriting good soil um well no one tiny, um, tiny minority yeah. a tiny tiny minority mm. and they're fucking delighted obviously mm. but they still have to work hard to keep it that way mm. i mean there's that old chestnut in french where the uh, saint exubery the guy who wrote the little prince uh, talking about it's not you know i'm borrowing the land from my and my mm. descendants yes but you know the the amount of people who truly think like that mm. is about less than half percent as farmers mm. and you know i i i know very few of them and i mean the t two guys who really affect and the, neither of them are particularly easy people to get on with mm. is didier Barral and, and patrick mayo who who've uh, these days i don't spend too much time going to visit people which 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 I actually enjoy um but i was fortunate to have contact with those two guys um, who do live that maxim. I mean, I, I once had a very strange meal in, in Stockholm. Um, great meal, but, but uh, after a wine tasting, an organic, every, all organic biodynamic producers. And there was a chap who's a president of a biodynamic association. And, um, you know, he, he said he was very friendly and said he, he loved my wine and I should be part of that movement. Um, a grouping of, of biodynamic producers and I was like yeah but you know and he said you know we, when you have you been to Alsace and I said well I've only got one friend in Alsace but it's a guy called Patrick Mayer and his face just changed and and he started frothing and saying he was a criminal and <laughs> he should be shot he actually uh, said he should be shot uh, right. uh, because his vineyards are full of grass yeah. and they're not the, the shoots aren't tidy. And one thing that impressed me very much with Pat, beyond the soil and the earthworms and all that crap, but mm. was the, the, the beauty of the shoots. I mean, the, mm. the strength and that he wasn't having to tip out. They were growing to us to, and they've got quite high palissage mm. uh, um, uh, uh, wire. Mm. Um, but there was a, a beautiful balance and uh, the shoot quality. I mean, that, that, it turned you on. It's, yeah, because you, you want to prune it. You, you, mm. know, you, you know that the secateur biting into that wood is going to feel fantastic. Mm. It's an elastic bite. When, mm. when it's like biting into a good steak, and, um, more or less. And um, I, I, I was flabbergasted. I, I, I thought he was taking the piss initially. Mm. Oh, really? And, and then he just got redder and it, redder. It got more and more. And, oh, hang on, he's serious. And I, I just... You know, I, I still even, okay, we now are in Stockholm and people on our table, you know, were looking at this and hearing Then by then everyone was stopping talking. Mm. And the you, anger of this yeah. guy was just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I, Jesus, this guy clearly hasn't understood much uh, about just the human aspect of farming. And, and you still respect your neighbor. I mean, even if he's doing something offensive to you, I mean... Mm. I've got neighbors who are spraying chemicals and shit, but you know, I'm not going to not say hello to them. Um, yeah. And yet, in the inverse, it's quite true. I've got neighbors who won't greet me because of the fact that I have uh, plants other than vines growing in my soil. Yeah. And it becomes, for them, a moral issue. So it's... it's um, challenging. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it's challenging socially. It's challenging... Um, 
physically. I mean, I've, I had my shoulder rebuilt. And, you know, we had years of, of pushing out organic matter on the back of a trailer. And, you know, the guy I paid to work for me was maybe driving the tractor at the time. Well, neither of the two guys who work for me now. And I would be on the back shoveling the, the compost. Mm. Because I know if I make him shovel the compost, he's going to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So better to let him drive the tractor. Yeah. And chaps are never and, happier. And, and you might get an extra season out of him more too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and still, you know, we'd maybe, you know, a lot of that was done and, and I mean, still good guys, so they, they, they will take a turn at, at shoveling and, uh, but yeah, you have to be there. And these days I'm, I'm a lot more organized and had to be in terms of machinery and uh, there's a lot more available as well. Mm. Um, you know, the, the organic matter thing is, 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 is catching on and people are realizing and. The, the makers of farm equipment are, are giving you more choice. They're responding, yeah. Slowly, yeah. Um, but it is happening. Cool. And, um, you know, even things like a good seed plow, or, which is very important for the particular conditions of sowing in, in vineyard rows. Uh, the, the, f <laughs> the first one I bought was an old wheat seeder, and it was just way too big. Uh, we, we ended up cutting it down with a gas axe and, mm. you know, spending fucking days and days trying to get this thing. Trying to modify it for you. Yeah, mm. oh, which we did, but it, yeah. but it was, you know, these days you can actually buy something that's meant to do that. Mm. So yeah, right. it's, it, it does take a lot of, yeah, you need a good workshop. Jesus, mm. that's an important part of making wine. <laughs> and um, and, beer. and I, I'm not uh, someone that wants to spend my life in a workshop fixing shit. But, but we do end up spending an awful amount of time doing that crap. Maybe just um, talk about the, the end of observatory. I mean, how long did it last? When did you sort of... Okay, well, the last vintage where I was active in the winery was 2005. Mm -hmm. And I mean, by that, I mean, my sister was doing more of the hands-on, virtually everything, and doing doing a good job. But, you know, it was... Uh, if you're not coming from a farming background, the the, the thing of running a farm, uh, making wine, uh, selling wine, is it's it's a huge burden. If it's not necessarily your passion, but at the same time, in those days, you know, there, there wasn't a an automatic market for natural wine. Mm. It was, um, you know, whether it was France or or, or or, or here, um, you know, I, I was really having to to push and shove to get wine sold. Um, people were worried about them. People were afraid of them. Mm -hmm. um, Did you have? I mean, who was who was supporting them domestically? Uh, Harold Breschel Schmidt at yeah. uh, Aubergine. You can still buy them there, actually. And he was a great customer. If you, if you, want, if you want to go buy and taste your old wines. Still well, there. I'd happily be go by, but yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very sentimental about no. my old wines, but I tasted an O2 Carignan Syrah the other night, and, mm -hmm. and lovely. I actually thought it was French initially. Mm. Um, that doesn't sound good, does it? But, um, <laughs> and uh, no, there's certainly people who supported me, other than, mm. otherwise it wouldn't have gotten mm. Grand Zero. I mean, yeah. it did. Um, but, but people were very doubtful. 
Um, well, it's still, I mean, that still remains. That's not that hasn't been solved. That problem. We were addressed. we were we were selling a lot of wine into Sweden, for example, mm -hmm. and I mean this is one story, and I'm going to tell it because uh, you know it, it it's quite important. And there was three different wines, including the white, and we sent a second shipment of the same wines, same bottling, and I get a letter saying or an email maybe already by that day and time, that the wines have re-fermented, all three of them, two different vintages, uh, three different wines, and that shipment of wines, they've all fermented, and that what am I going to do about it? And so I write back and say, look, uh, this is technically impossible, what you're describing, because you've got... And I, well, I made sure that the, the other shipment was fine, and it's the exact same wines. And on the authority of, of of a shop manager of one of the monopoly stores, that he says this is classic refermentation because the corks have lifted up and uh, a bit of wine has leaked out. I was like, what the fuck? So I said, look, please, just send me some samples in France. And and I tasted them, and effectively, it was a bit of wine had leaked out, and and it, uh, I was like, but this is not. Refermentation. This is there's no gas. There's no mm. off flavors. Yeah. Said so this is heat. Uh, mm. The container effectively it, it did in the long term turn out that the container had spent two weeks sitting on a dock somewhere in mm. Abu Dhabi or something. Mm. And um, you know I ended up doing a whole series of analyses uh, Stellenbosch where. They did 30-day uh, uh, cultures and under heat, and, and they pronounced the wines healthy and clean. And, um, yeah, it was a lot of cost, a lot of this and a lot of that. And they were like, no, but, you know, a lot of the your colleague winemakers from South Africa say that this is normal because you're not using sulfur and the wines aren't filtered, that they're not stable. And I was like, hang on, we, we've shown in every possible way that, that this is a heat issue. It's got nothing to do with... Mm. And I'm sure other wines in that shipment also had... It's a storage slash sh um, shipping issue, yeah. And, um, and then they were like, oh, yes, you know, at the end, you, you're, you're so right. And, um, you know, it's, we love the wines and they're so great. And, um, uh, well, you know, we can't really sell these ones because they're, they're damaged. But, um, and I never sold them another bottle. Mm. And I was doing 50,000 euros a year at the time. <laughs> 